0: back. Good to see you too. Um, I, I'm glad that y'all are back. Uh, I'm glad to be back. How was spring break? Oh, in a few words. Good, okay. <laughs> um, I'm excited to be here. My name is Sid and I'm the campus minister for our ULF Reform University Fellowship, which is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve you all in this campus. And really, we want to serve you all wherever you are and whoever you are. That really just means that this isn't meant for one kind of person before I was going to move that. Awesome. Uh, and that really just means that hopefully you feel welcome. It's for every kind of person. Or you have hope, hopefully feels like a community that reaches out to you no matter what your personal background is, no matter what you're seeing on campus is. Um, we hope you feel welcome. And we hope you feel welcome even if you're not sure where you are with Christianity or Jesus, uh, whether you call yourself a spiritual skeptic, whether you call a believer or you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, whether you just feel uncomfortable calling yourself any of the above or um, none of the above. Anyway, welcome, thanks for coming. If you're new especially, thanks for taking the risk. Uh, Thanks for taking the time. Uh, It's about midterms time probably still for some of you, so I appreciate that especially. So this semester, we have been looking at the books of Psalms and Proverbs. And we're studying Psalms and Proverbs together because they teach us how to process our lives. And so we've been um, looking at the ways in which Psalms and Proverbs teach us how to handle our emotions, how to make decisions, how to treat relationships, and how to live more fully, that is like more humanly and more humanely, here and now. That's what we've been up to, basically. And along these lines, I've got a title, which is really a paragraph in disguise. And it goes like this, um, Sorting Life praying our emotions to God, and applying God's wisdom to our decisions, our relationships, and ourselves. So we're talking about sorting life. Um, and tonight, we're actually, this is pretty exciting, we're finishing up part one, the first mini-series of the semester, how the Psalms <laughs> speak the topics of prayer and emotions. We will be finished with the Psalms after this week. Next week, we'll be moving on to Proverbs, and we will be looking at how Proverbs help us practice life. So um, I know some of you are just waiting for that moment. Um, But I thought, you know what what better to serve you with than the topic of sadness, Um, right before we leave, just for some nostalgia. Anyway, I really would also just say this again. I think they're in the back still. But we're trying to encourage you to pray and um, really pray your emotions through the Psalms to God. And so we have a handout in the back that's a rough cut. It's a rough draft edition. Uh, just kind of takes some of the psalms and then some of the emotions and matches them up. So if you want, can use it topically to pray about where you're coming from. And then I kind on of the back side. It shows you some ways to pray um, in terms of just maybe changing the Lord or God to you um, and using the psalm text directly or using some meditation questions on there. So that's just a, a tool. It's free. Go pick it up. Um, if there's not any more, there'll be another version that's more full yet simpler somehow. Um, I'm working on that. So give me some time, people. OK, so that's about it. So tonight, are reading our study Psalms. We're looking at Psalm 77 and how Psalm 77 helps us process and pray through our sadness. And that's what we're going to look at just together. So but before we look at connecting that emotion of sadness to the Psalms um, and through the Psalms to God, would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to, to gather. Um, people have changed over, um, just even the week since we met last, um, people went all over, um, the United States and even the world, um, I got a haircut, <laughs> um, huge changes. Um, anyway, Father, I'm thankful that you care about us and that you care about, uh, the many details of our lives, that you know exactly what we brought in and you know exactly <laughs> what we us with your goodness, with your truth, that you persuade our hearts, uh, especially on a topic like this, that you love us. Persuade our hearts, oh Father, that Jesus is more believable, more beautiful. Persuade us, oh Father, that uh, we're not the mess that we think we are in Christ. We ask these things, no matter where we are with Jesus, we ask them. So I'm going to start out just by confessing something. Isn't that fair and fun? Um, it's not that big of a confession. So. But I am perhaps the most unhandy man in the world. Uh, you will never meet a less handy man than me. Uh, let's just put it this way. Like when Lowe's and YouTube videos get together, they still can't fix my house. Uh, so there's a YouTube video for everything, and there's a Lowe's piece of equipment for everything. But it still doesn't work for me. Uh, a recent example of these skills at work was I decided to replace the smoke detector in our kitchen. Uh, like the rest of my house, um, this particular appliance died on the 10-year schedule, so I've been going through a cycle of sinks and toilets and uh, refrigerators. It's been awesome, and I don't, I don't know how to fix things, so it's been really fun. Um, so I, I looked at this problem, and I thought it's not a refrigerator. It's certainly not a toilet. I think I had handle it. Um, so I took some kids, and we drove the Lowe's, and I shopped around. I didn't ask for help. and just walked the aisles over and over again until I found something. Um, and I found a smoke detector, brand new. Um, and then uh, I let it, you know, you have got to breathe a little bit, so I let it sit in the brown or the gray plastic bag for several weeks. Because <laughs> we didn't want to rush things. Um, Meanwhile, my family's safety was in jeopardy. Um <laughs> heard about it multiple times, and then finally I mustered up the courage to set up my stepladder, and uh, I took down the old smoke detector, and in the meantime I exposed some live electrical wires in the process. That's not supposed to happen, but I did it. (laughs) Uh, This was awesome. And so, then I tried to reconnect the new smoke detector, and I (laughs) looked up and I grabbed those wires, and I heard the sizzle and pop before I felt the jolt of electricity. Because yes, I did minorly electro- electrocute myself. I nearly fell backwards off the stepladder. and I felt angry and scared and all at the same time. And so I let the job rest again, <laughs> 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 because like, you don't want to rush things, especially if you get electrocuted. And I went to the fuse box, and I did what most homeowners will do at one point: I just randomly guessed which fuses were <laughs> different pieces of the house. <laughs> brilliant. Um, And so uh, and then I only got shocked one more time uh, as I tried to replace the smoke detector. It's all true. I wish I was making this up. And this time it actually didn't just sizzle and pop and jolt, it actually smoked too, which is awesome. And so finally I grabbed the wires, which were now thoroughly dead because I flipped every switch in the 3 And then I screwed the new smoke detector back on and Took a breath, made a prayer, and it started beeping, so I think it worked. Okay, so what? Why am I telling you that story? Um, Is that home dragging? I don't know. Uh, Borderline. So, like my house, I guess I want to say life doesn't work the way it's supposed to work, and it falls apart. Maybe not in a 10 year cycle, maybe a little quicker than that. Life has like live or hot wires, electrical wires that can sizzle, pop, and jolt and make us hurt. And when this happens, the emotional reaction beneath the fear and the anger is actually sadness. <coughs> so when you get hurt, you feel sad. But you know what? Sadness can feel actually more painful and more out of control than the jolt of hurt. And so what do we do with that? Most of us try to shut it off. We trip the circuit. We throw the lever in the fuse box of our hearts. And so we shut off the power surge to and from our wounds back and forth to our hearts. But you know, the hard part is that tripping the fuse doesn't allow any sensitivity to go back and forth. It doesn't allow us to feel good or bad things. Uh, and so we choose by doing that to feel nothing rather than sad. And this makes sense for a short time, right? You gotta get through a discussion. Someone said something that was crushing, you're about to cry, you need to, move, you need to just make it, okay? Or sometimes it's an exam or a paper that just won't wait. Um, but imagine if, like in my home improvement project, that I just got so tired or so afraid about the kitchen electricity that I refused to go to the fuse box and reflip on all of the switches, right? Imagine that I didn't put the circuit breakers back into place, or if I tried to do that, they couldn't lock back into place, and there's no electricity. Then if I wanted to cook, what would I do? Okay, I'd have to move the microwave to the bedroom and cook there. Okay. <laughs> Out of, out of service. What if I want to use a dishwasher, right? I would have to take the dishes, do them by hand in the, kitchen, in the bathroom sink rather than deal with the potential pain of the kitchen area. And here's my point, And this is the point of like a lot of counselors. I'm not just saying this. It's a, a helpful metaphor. But we kind of popular level confuse sadness and depression. It's a common confusion of sadness and depression. Um, we confuse that pain that sadness feels we confuse that deadness that depression feels. But they're really, really different. I know they're both very negative. They're both like, the opposite of happiness and gratitude. But at least one Christian counselor, John Cox, says that sadness is a holy emotion. Believe it or not, sadness is a holy emotion. Sadness is God's gift for pain. And it's on the move and it's going somewhere holy. Whereas depression or despair is this actual refusal to feel. It's like an anti-emotion almost. It's this swamp-like state of feeling blocked or feeling stuck or feeling just plain exhausted with life. And so Psalm 77 actually dares to enter into these kinds of very real pain with honesty and understanding. I think you'll see that as we go through it. But it also challenges us not to cut the power. It challenges us to actually rock in sadness towards God-given hope. We're called not to cut the power, but to rock in sadness toward God-given hope. Okay, So that is this, basically. Psalm 77 shows us what depression feels like. And if you've got your outline, I'm just going right through it. Okay, What depression feels like, verses 1 through 4. How feeling sadness moves us out of depression. Verses 1 through 12, there's some overlap there. Okay, and then finally, that, that God is present with us in our darkness, and he feeds us slivers of hope. So God is present with us in our darkness, and he's feeding us slivers of hope. A hope, by the way, that kicks at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. And that's verses 13 through 20. And that was a quote from someone else. So let's begin at the beginning and of Psalm 77, and hear the psalmist Asaph speak honestly and openly about what. His, his depression feels like, okay? Verses 1 through 4. We're look at what depression feels like in the Psalms. I, wanted, I want you to notice that Asaph's both intentionally specific and intentionally general about his depression. Okay? So for instance, Asaph is describing the smoldering intensity of despair. He's doing it specifically. He says, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. and the night, my hand is stretched out without weary. My soul refuses to be comforted. Verse 2. Aesop's depression is day and night, nonstop, untiring, comfortless. Verses three and four, Aesop tells us, Aesop tells us, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You, God, hold my eyelids open. And I am so troubled, I cannot speak. Again, depression is relentless. Depression is deep-seated. It causes moaning, it causes fainting, it can sometimes cause insomnia, and it can prevent speech. Even. There's just no words for some pain. But notice that Aesop implicates God in all of this. That's so uncomfortable. Why does he have to do that? Okay, Because it's so true, right? These symptoms, these despairs, God's making him stay awake. That's his, that's his confession. He's saying that the remembrance of God actually makes him moan. Okay? And this reflects reality. Often depression is caused by multiple things, right? So look at this, how general he's being here. So he's being specific about the smoldering intensity, how personal <laughs> it is to him and even to God. But then we can see that he's also being extremely general about the causes of his depression. Okay? We don't exactly know what caused ASAP's depression. He doesn't give us any real hints. The causes are unnamed. They're intentionally gen- general. And again, I'm going to say this, it reflects reality. Often depression is caused by different and competing causes and factors. Okay? Our depression can be self afflicted at least partly, at least partly self-perpetuated. But it can also be driven by hurtful people and places and times outside of us. right? And then finally, there's this whole process that I don't really understand, but I'm going to talk about it anyway, which is biochemistry. Um, and I'm just going to hint at it. Uh, but basically there's something physically wrong inside of our brain sometimes that can come from our genetics. Okay, depression can be traced in your family tree, but it also can come epi- epigenetically, which means kind of genes plus environment working together. Okay, so that's all I've got, so don't ask me questions about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and hopefully the that are really helpful. Okay, so anyway, it's probably really helpful to think of these as sort of overlapping domains. Thinking of like a Venn diagram of cause. Okay? So I'm, I'm going to quote a doctor here because I'm feeling uncomfortable. And his name is, <laughs> is David Martin Lloyd-Jones, Okay, and he's a medical doctor before becoming a pastor. And he says it this way, many Christian people are in utter ignorance concerning where the borderlines between physical, psychological, and the spiritual meet. He's saying many Christian people, I'd say people in general, are in utter ignorance about where the borderlines between the physical and the psychological and the spiritual meet. And he basically says a lot of people, because they don't exactly understand where depression happens, they tend, to, they tend to emphasize or major in one cause. Okay, So they end up overemphasizing one cause, and therefore a treatment over and against the other causes and possible treatments. Does that make sense? So like, for instance, we can over-spiritualize the problem, but at the same time, if verses 3 and 4 are at all right, we can also over-prescribe the symptoms without ever getting to the spiritual heart roots of the problem. does that? Are we kind of finding that tension, that balance? But I really don't want you to miss the point, again, I've said this a couple of times, that there's a real fundamental realism to Psalm 77 about the problem. Again, like, like many other parts of the Psalms, Psalm 77 is actually doing a really beautiful thing for us. It's unblushingly, non-judgmentally describing what it feels like to be Depression, which affects nearly 25% of people, I don't know if you need that statistic, one in four of us, okay, is part of the human condition. So basically, you're going to be depressed, you are depressed, or you were depressed, or you know someone and love someone and close to you is depressed. This is part of the air we breathe. That's why we're talking about it, okay? Uh, And so I'm really actually very thankful the scriptures openly and without shame talk about depression. Even when we struggle to talk about it in that exact way in the church, but even at Davidson. And further, Psalm, there's psalms like Psalm 88. I almost preached on this. You can thank me later. okay? Because it, this tells, Psalm 88 tells us what counselors and doctors confirm. That depression can be extremely difficult, it can be hard to treat, and it can stay put for a very long time. In fact, I want you to quote the last line of Psalm 88. Because Psalm 77, you're like, oh, that's so cheap gets depressed, and he gets happy again. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Psalm 88 ends with this line, darkness is my only companion. And in the Hebrew, the word darkness is the very last word. Boom, done, kill the lights. That's exactly what, that's the realism of the Psalms. And darkness is really this apt description of of despair, because many sufferers of depression actually describe it as like a dark filter placed over their you see, depression both isolates us and it distorts the reality outside of us. So we're isolated from other people, and we're distorted from we, reality outside of us. Appears distorted to us. Um, there's this really helpful article called Depression's Odd Filter, and a counselor, another counselor, Ed Welch. He describes depression's filter and how it distorts what people say to us. So I just—he's going to say—I'm going to say a few things. And he's going to translate them. Okay. So he says, someone says to you, "I love you." You hear nothing. Well, actually, you do hear something. You hear a little small voice in your brain that says, when they say, I love you, it says, I'm worthless. You're only saying you love me because you think you have to. You say, you look nice today. Push it through the filter of depression, you get, not true, I know I'm ugly. Or you seem to be feeling a little bit better today. This means, to the depressed person, oh, you don't want to talk to God says I love you. You if you're feeling depressed here. God loves some people, but he could never actually love me. This is so helpful for us to know. Because many of us are treating people around us who are struggling by shouting things like I love you. You look nice. You seem better today. At these depressed people, but they just can't hear it. And that frustrates us and that frustrates them. Loving somebody in despair doesn't look like invading their, their suffering with relentless positivity. Okay? But it also doesn't look like avoiding them and their shame filter and their negativity altogether. According to like memoirs I've read, friends that I've had who've suffered with depression, and my own personal experiences with despair, I think ta- loving depressed people looks like this. It looks like being present to another person's pain without trying to fix it. Okay? It looks like to stand respectfully at the edge of a person's mystery and their misery, and staying there, you're gonna feel useless, you're gonna feel powerless, but that's exactly how a depressed person feels. Which is why we don't wanna sit with them that way. Because we don't wanna feel that way, we don't wanna be in a problem we can't fix. But you know what? Sitting with someone in that kind of empathy and that kind of compassion communicates something subtle but really important. It communicates God's presence in his hope. And really God's presence and his hope is what the person struggling with depression must move towards. And God's presence and his hope are at the spiritual root of, of how, how um, sadness moves us out of depression, point two. Okay? It takes something it takes a hope in something more, in someone more, to be willing to trust in Sadness' process, because it's painful. And I want you to see it's beautifully laid out for us in the psalm. Asaph is showing you how this hope, this faith, is at work. And you see it in verses 1 through 12. At his very most depressed, Asaph is naming how reality feels, and Asaph is doing so by saying these thoughts to someone. He's saying them to the very God who he thinks is so absent. It's so amazing. Think about what he's doing. He's complaining about God not being there to God. Okay. He's saying, he's saying, you've abandoned me. And he's complaining about this despair, this isolation, this distortion. And many people will sit there and say, this is a scene of unbelief. This is faithless Asaph. And I would argue, and many other people would argue, that Praying when we don't feel God, but we're not sure He's hearing us, we're not sure He's even there. Those moments are faithful moments. It takes faith and a willing when you have a willingness to stay with pain. Okay? It takes faith not to choose to trip the breaker. It takes faith not to choose to override the feeling of desiring God. But verses five through six tell us Asaph's not merely doing What's normal, as hard as that would be. Asa is actually turning towards the heat of his struggle. Look, at first he directs his thoughts and feelings towards his past personal experience with God. Verse 5: I consider the days of old, the years long ago. He's thinking about happier times, happier songs, happier thoughts. Okay? But then you can see by verse 7, he's totally lost that train of thought. Okay? This attempt to redirect his thoughts and feelings has failed. And it tells us that this prayer from the position of despair actually takes time. It's a process. This is like time-lapse photography in the Okay, This is not like instantaneous. Because then you see him do another later attempt, and he attempts to take his sadness directly this time. He's not just speaking to God or remembering God in his life. Aesop is interrogating God this time. He's asking hot and heavy, very loaded questions. Listen to what he says in verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord spurn or abandon me forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Are his promises over for all time? Has he in anger shut up or closed off his compassion? And I really appreciate the fact that these, all these questions can be summarized are verse 10. And verse 10, by the way, this translation is. It's like there's more written on this than you need to know. But I think basically the preferred translation goes something more like, this is my grief. The right hand of God has changed. This is my grief. The right hand of God has changed. So it's actually like the crescendo, not a turning point in the psalm of his lament, OK, of his anger and his sadness. And really, like the psalmist is basically asking God himself, what difference does God make? If God is for real and he's really powerful, so what? Why don't I feel better? And perhaps most personally, is God even good? Or will he just leave me isolated and alone? I mean, do we ask these kind of questions when we're feeling really hurt and really wounded? Do we dare ask these questions? Do we dare name the fears and the angers when we're feeling depressed? Asking these kinds of questions forces us to struggle, to long for, to be sad. We get to ask God to reset the bone breaks of guilt and of pride and of anger and of suffering and of loneliness. It's an invitation for God to intervene when depression is blocking everyone, including God, out. And finally, verses 11 through 12, this is the fourth redirection. This is Asaph's fourth attempt, just so you know. Okay? This is the Olympics he beat his The prayerful, angle approach gains traction. Look at this. Aesop in his sadness is actually kind of moved. He's moved from present experience to past experience to God himself, and now he's moved to God's past deeds with people like Aesop. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will remember all your works, and I will meditate on your mighty deeds. Verses 11 through 12. And I'm going to discuss why this works in a minute when we look at verses 13 through 20. Um, But I really think there's some value to Verses 1 through 12. Take a step back. These actually teach us how to be sad. I'm going to talk about this really quickly, and it's really important. Okay. Many of us are like the character Joy in the movie Inside Out. Okay. You know, we're not Amy Poehler uh, from Parks and Rec, but we don't see the value of sadness. Okay. We don't get it. We all want our memories to be sort of haloed by the color of joy, yellow and happiness, and we maybe want some goofiness, uh, a core personality of sorts. But we really, as we get older, we have to face more of life. We have to face life more squarely, head on. We need sadness's ability to deal with pain, and we need it more and more and more. The counselor again, John Cox, asks us to imagine sadness. Okay, as imagine like a first aid kit. Okay, so he takes us back to the Garden of Eden. He takes us back to um, the scene where the first parents, Adam and Eve, have. Uh, have kind of dissolved into cloaking their nakedness with shame. They've dissolved into hiding and blaming each other in the midst of their pain. And John Cox asks us to reimagine what that looks like by saying that as they're leaving the garden, God says, hey there, hold up. And they look up and he takes the first aid kit from heaven. He throws it end over end. He says, you'll need this. And they open it up in its sadness. It's a gift from God. So instead of withdrawing or taking or judging or controlling what we can't have, we get to be sad about it. Instead of trying to make ourselves good enough by self-criticism or punishment or anxiety, we get to grieve the difference. Instead of loving or trying to eliminate all human evil, we can mourn it. Instead of killing the pain by tripping the breaker or acting out or shutting down, we can sorrow. We develop skills of sadness like the song is asaph. We face our longings and our aches. We let go of unhealthy expectations of reality. We grab onto healthy love. And we resist the temptation to act out or to shut down long enough to ask ourselves a few pointed questions. Excuse me. A few pointed questions. Ask yourself in that moment when you want to act out the most What am I feeling right now? Do I feel weak? Where? Do I feel strong? Where? What do I most want right now? But we actually most practically develop the skill of sadness by praying. And this is what's so beautiful about the Psalm. God knows we struggle to pray our sadness back to Him to lament. And so, what do you usually do? He gives us a script for learning to speak what we never felt permitted to say, He gives us words to put our sadness. Psalm 88, verses 1 through 12 of Psalm 77, and a host of other Psalms. And so maybe I would like like to argue that we should add the L of lament to our acronyms of prayer. (laughs) I'm pushing for it. LAX. Acts, adoration, confession, uh, thanksgiving, supplication. Lament. Axel. The Psalm, like, I really want to add lament, okay? Because the Psalm basically is saying this is what you do when you're hurt, when you're lonely, when you're. Okay, so it's amazing the way that, like, honestly lamenting something is a natural momentum, and a certain motion actually leads to hope, and it sets the stage for thanksgiving, and it sets the stage for praise. And I'm going to, this is so helpful, there's a 13th century Persian poet, Rumi, who puts the truth beautifully. Just a really helpful image for us. Sorrow prepares for joy. Sorrow prepares for joy. and violently sweeps everything out of your house so that a new joy can find space to enter. Pulls up rotten roots so that new roots hidden beneath have room to grow. Whatever sorrow shakes from your heart, far better things will take their place. And we see this swooping, this, we see this sweeping and uprooting and shaking off from sadness and this transition of ASAP that's not so sudden. We see verses 1 through 12 move into 13 through 20 to a growing confidence, okay? That God is present with us in the darkness, that God can Feeds us with his hopeful splinters of light. That third and final point that we've been talking about. Okay? So briefly again, the shift in Aesop's word choice indicates it all. It shows us the shift. He's moving from depression to sadness to hope. And he pivots from a singular purpose, like a singular personal focus, and he shifts all the way to a communal and plural focus. Beginning in verse 14, look at the word, peoples. Then in verse 20 again, people, as well as these mentions of these historical leaders of the people of God, Jacob and Joseph, verse 15, Moses and Aaron, verse 20. And basically saying, turn from yourself and turn towards your community. Like depression, sadness needs people to weep with those who are weeping, to listen, to pray, to speak the truth into the situation. And these people ought to be the people of God, the church. I love the way that the blind songwriter, uh, Ken Meadema, put it. If the church is not a place where tears are understood, where do I go to cry? If the church is not a place where tears are understood, where do I go to cry? I would love this to be a place where we can not only talk about an uncomfortable subject, but we can talk about a person. And then also, you see later in the, in the psalm, you see Asaph's word choice doesn't just change from singular to plural or personal to communal. It changes from this I pronoun, okay, his last uses in verse 12, to the you pronoun, littered throughout verses 13 through 20. He's shifting his language. In verses 13 through 14, Asaph is starting to, to ask us to consider God's character. Perhaps we don't know always what God is doing. Perhaps his footsteps disappear, as in the words of the psalm. Okay, But we can know who God is. Even when I don't feel God, I can know who God is, that he's holy, he's great, and I know he works wonders. And here's the thing, how can I know that God is like this? How? Like Asaph, I look back at history. Right? At Jesus' crucifixion. The language all carries... Okay, his day of trouble. He cried aloud to God in his despair and his abandonment. Jesus moaned. His spirit fainted on the cross and the rough cut Roman wood beams. But even there, especially there, there's a scene, in that scene of seeming abandonment, God shows up in this unimaginable way. And he shows up with darkness kicking hope. Do you see that? Resurrection, even there, that's so encouraging. And then in verses 15 through 20, Asaph asks us to continue to pray towards God's past deeds. Perhaps we don't know what God is doing, but we know what he did. He literally redeemed his people. That is, he rescued ancient Israel from Egyptian slavery, and he opened up a channel in the middle of the Red Sea, and he led them across on dry land. But how could I know that this God still does things like that, that he still rescues us? Again, like Asaph, I get to look back at history. I get to look at the cross. And I think this is so beautiful. Jesus didn't just suffer with us in despair. He doesn't just get it. He suffered for us, through despair, pushing into darkness. He exchanges on the cross his victory for our losses, his life for our defeats. And that changes everything. Again, I'm going to quote back. Listen to the way that Ed Welsh describes the way that Jesus changes the way that filters, distortion of the distortion filter of depression works. So when Jesus says, I love you, and you say, no, not me. I'm not unlovable. I'm not lovable. Jesus can honestly say, but I do love you. Not because you're lovable, but because I love you. And this is what Welch writes. Pause on this one. Jesus loves you because he's love. He loves you because of who he is not because of who you are if you feel unlovable and who doesn't that makes his love for you all the more amazing we're we kind of tracking with this let to tie it together with the story that I'm done okay maybe I can tie together the whole who God is what he's done and how it changes how we feel that's that's the goal okay and I'm gonna make one last confession on the home front uh, maybe it's a humble brag I'm not sure um, I feel like I'm getting worse as a parent. Um, but having two six-year-olds and a single little four-year-old has some sweet moments, too. And so it's going to get bad before it gets better, but I'm going to tell a story. Okay. So recently, my six-year-old, Carol, she was lively, to say the least. Um, bright blue eyes, uh, straight blonde hair, uh, very wild energetic. Okay. It's getting wild energetic in the bedroom at bedtime jumping up and down, doing headstands head on her bed, that's what she does, she's great at that. And so I had to sort of take her aside and talk with her, and I said, hey, look, Carol, daddy's in charge, I'm really sorry, I have to take away a privilege, you don't get dessert the next time we have dessert. And I put Carol into my bed because I had to get away from her twin brother, William, okay? And I was tucking Carol in, you could tell that she was pretty discouraged, right? She was upset with herself about how she behaved, she was sort of discouraged like about losing dessert, Um, And maybe I could say she was like sad and kind of getting angry, and you could feel it in the room. But you know, I was tucking her in and kind of put her into the put her on the the pillows and put the blanket around her. And then I was sort of turning to walk to turn off the light and walk out the door. And and I heard Carol mutter something to herself. And I turned like quick and I was like so mad because I thought she was talking back to me. (laughs) Right? I was like, ah, I'm getting ready. Um, Silverback gorilla. (laughs) <laughs> Just trying to like not say something, right? But but I sort of said, what's that? What'd you say? And then she kind of gave this like small grin at me. And she was holding her little blanket, and she goes, she confessed. Uh, this this really beautiful thing. She says, um, I, I was saying out loud, but I can't lose daddy love. I can't lose daddy love. And look, we that was this really beautiful. Moment. I said daddy love, and she said, yeah, I can lose dessert who was a bunch of other privileges, right? But she was telling herself out loud that she could not lose daddy love. We both smiled, of course. And I told her, Carol, no matter what you do, you can never, ever, ever lose daddy love. I'm so, you're so right. I love you no matter what. You know what Carol told herself in that moment of growing sadness and anger is what ASAP is doing. And for us, it's what Psalm 77 teaches us to do. Who God is and what God has done. These things never change in Jesus. Okay? Therefore, I'm going to be very clear, and you maybe have to say this out loud to yourself. No matter what you do, no matter how badly you feel, you can't lose that love in Jesus. It's not, it's not your love to lose. It's his love. And he gives it freely. Privilege you'll never lose. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time and a really hard topic. <laughs> um, but I'm so thankful that we get to talk about these things and I pray that you would let sit what needs to sit and, and let fly what needs to fly. Um, you're true and you're good and you're patient. And I convince our hearts that you love us. Um, don't let depression's odd filter win.